welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, October 17, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in 2019, uh, an article, or a 2019 article on the website, Eat This, Not That, listed the top 15 sandwiches in America. All right, are you ready? See if your favorites made the list. Number 15, the French dip. One of my all-time favorites as a kid to order in a restaurant. Uh, Just love dipping things. Uh, Number 14, the Reuben sandwich, uh, especially when the pastrami is nice and lean. Yes. And a nice rye bread, I think, makes it perfect. Uh, number 13, meatball sandwich. Uh, wonderful Italian contribution to the sandwich. Number 12, egg salad. This is the first one on the list that I have a problem with. Just not a fan of egg salad. But hey, if that's something you like, congratulations. Uh, number 11, tuna salad. Uh, the challenge, of course, for me. Also not a big mayo fan. Uh, I do like tuna, though. So the amount of mayo that you mix in makes all the difference for me. Oh, and you must add pickle relish uh, for a really good tuna sandwich, yes. Number 10, pulled pork. The South makes an appearance uh, with this excellent addition. Number nine, uh, peanut butter and jelly, one of my go-to sandwiches that I probably eat more than anything else, especially if you can get the extra chunky peanut butter. Uh, The type of jelly or jam does not matter, but you gotta have that extra chunky peanut butter. Unless you're John and allergic to peanuts, then it would kill you, so don't do that. Uh, Number eight, the bacon and egg bagel breakfast sandwich. Uh, How about a sandwich in the morning? This is uh, becoming quite popular. Number seven, the club. I might say this is one of the more underrated sandwiches on the list. Uh, We often don't order the club, but once you do, you realize, hey, this is a really good sandwich. Uh, Number six, the BLT. Now, it took me a while to appreciate this. As a child, I was not a tomato fan. I would make a BLC bacon, lettuce, and cheese, but then as I got older and my palate became more mature, I started appreciating the tomatoes. Uh, Number five, the ham sandwich. Can't beat a good ham sandwich. Number four, the roast beef sandwich. Arby's does a great job in in this if you need a go-to after the service, if you're starting to get a little bit hungry right now. Uh, Number three, the turkey sandwich, another classic and go-to for many people. Number two, quite surprising, the grilled chicken sandwich. I mean, I'm a little bit shocked. I didn't expect this to be number two, but I guess people are eating more healthy and grilled chicken is right there up on the list. And number one, what have I missed? That's right, I heard it. The grilled cheese. Yes, yes. And all I can say is, ooh, baby, baby, love me some grilled cheese. That's probably... Uh, next to peanut butter and jelly, my, my favorite sandwich to make. So, uh, but you know what sandwiches they left off the list? Uh, in addition to the ice cream sandwich and the knuckle sandwich that you learned of when you were a kid, is the story sandwich. Concha, you never heard of the story sandwich? Well, you've come on the right Sunday. Stay tuned. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, Welcome to the second week in our October sermon series entitled Undead, Resurrection and New Life in the Bible. And I promise you, the heart of this is going to be a story sandwich. But be patient, you got to wait for it. So, without further ado, let's jump in 
to our Bible reading. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Frederick Buechner, in his collection of sermons entitled Secrets in the Dark, has this interesting observation about our passage's setting. He writes, The story Mark tells takes place on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, which isn't really a sea at all, of course, but a large freshwater lake some 13 miles long and 8 miles across, surrounded by high mountains and apparently roughly in the shape of a heart, which is rather wonderful if you stop to think about it, a heart-shaped lake at the heart of where it all happened. I also love uh, what Art Ross says in Feasting on the Gospels, that every time Mark uses the word boat, it's a clue that we're invited to listen for lessons that prepare the disciples how to be the church. You see, one of the early symbols for the Christian church was the boat. And Mark is preparing us to pay attention that here are going to be some life lessons, some spiritual insight for how we as the church are going to be called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Verse 22. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw him, fell at his feet. Now, this man is first identified by his position even before his name. He is one of the leaders of the synagogue. Now, a synagogue was a local gathering place for religious learning and for worship. There was only one temple in Jerusalem, but there were many, many synagogues all throughout Israel. Dr. M. Eugene Boring, in his New Testament library commentary on Mark, says that Jairus's job as a synagogue uh, official or leader would have encompassed the following. He would have been responsible for the building and making sure that it was maintained and uh, kept in good shape. He would have led worship when they gathered every week, and he would have taken care of the general administration. So this was a position of status and power in the local community. Remember, everything in the Jewish community centered around their religious experience and expression. In fact, Jairus was probably used to others coming to him asking for favors and uh, that he would do things for them. Verse 22, again. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, even though Jairus is a man of position, power, and substance, he is coming to Jesus not as a synagogue leader, but as a father, a father in need. In fact, it could be seen as quite controversial for him as a synagogue leader to come to Jesus in the first place, because the word on the street, at least among the religious leaders in Israel, was that Jesus was a menace to be stopped. He was a blasphemer, and the party line was, avoid him at all costs. But as we said, Jairus is a father in need, and he's desperate. His daughter is sick. He says, sick to the point of death, and, and Dr. Boring notes that in the ancient world, sickness was actually the leading edge of death. To be sick was to already be in the grasp of death. People didn't recover uh, like they do uh, today. Frederick Buechner notes that it's interesting that Jairus calls her my little daughter. 
Now, we'll find out a little bit later, she's actually 12 years old. She's on the verge of becoming a young woman, so she's really not so little, actually. But then again, we parents, we often will see our sons and daughters as children, right? Because that's when we first knew them and how we first loved them as our children. So Jairus falls down at the feet of Jesus. It's not an act of worship, but an act of reverence. This religious leader casts aside his traditional venues, and in desperation, he comes to Jesus and Jesus' reputation for healing. Verse 24, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, and she had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, a seemingly insignificant fact starts the section off. Mark says a large crowd was pressing in on Jesus and the disciples. Now, Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and Mark does not use words unnecessarily. So just tuck this away for use later. There's a reason why Mark tells us this. And, Concha, now we come to the story sandwich, right? The technique is a story within a story And it was a common practice, uh, not just in the Bible, but in in, uh, many parts of the ancient Near East, and something that Mark does quite a bit. The technical term is intercalation, or insertion, or interpolation, or dovetailing, interweaving, interlocking, framing, or if you want to impress your friends, the jargon of neurology says heterodigetic analepsis. Don't worry, it's in the notes if you want to go and find that later, too throw that out in your conversation. I think we'll just call it a story sandwich, though, right? Story sandwich. The main point is, in a story sandwich, both stories take on greater meaning when seen in light of each other. So, while on the way to Jairus' daughter, we meet this unnamed woman who also has a major problem. She's been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. Let that sink in. 12 years. That's 4,380 days of bleeding. Now, aside from the fact that no one should be bleeding for that long, it's also a spiritual issue in Judaism. The Old Testament and Jewish tradition were deeply concerned about contamination by blood. Blood was seen to be the, the source of life. And according to Leviticus chapter 15, anyone who comes in contact with someone who is bleeding Uh, would be ritually unclean, and they would have to then isolate themselves for a significant period of time. And because of this, this woman probably lived a very isolated life and was extremely lonely. In fact, Dr. Boring notes that vaginal bleeding prohibited marriage. It was the grounds for divorce. So in the understanding of their culture, As a woman, she wasn't able to fulfill her role and duty. She could not bring new life into the world as a mother. And so everyone around her would have left her. It's clear that unlike Jairus' daughter, she has no one to intercede on her behalf. Now, Mark tells us she used to be a woman of some wealth, but you know, the crazy cost of health care these days. She spent all she has. She's still sick. Femi Perkins writes about a 70-year-old man she knows that once told her, you know, after a certain age, you're never really well. You're just less sick than you were before. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that. Verse 27. She heard about Jesus, 
and came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Editors uh, Newsom, Ringi, and Lapsley in the Woman's Bible Commentary mentions the, the cultural oddities about this setting, things that we might miss today because we don't understand what it was like back then. They write that a woman who at least one time had some wealth should be in such a public place, evidently unaccompanied by protectors, and that she should dare touch a strange man without his consent, uh, these are extraordinary events in an ancient cultural context. Either the degree of her desperation or, as Mark has Jesus say, the depth of her faith makes such unheard of actions possible. Now remember, she has been constantly bleeding, and so anyone she touches or anyone that touches her also becomes unclean. Now the onus is on her as the person with this ailment to keep her distance from everyone else. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And remember, Mark told us the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. Well, this is the perfect time for this bold, unnamed woman to reach out in faith while tons of others are jostling up near Jesus. She has to take matters into her hands, literally, because she feels she has no other options left. Verse 29. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, Oh, you see the crowd pressing in. How can you say, Who touched me? Now, the Greek language here is so vivid. The first part of this verse literally can be translated, and immediately the spring or fountain or flow of her blood was dried up. It has the image of a river suddenly running dry, a river that has been flowing for 12 long years. Now, the woman knows immediately that she has been healed. Jesus knows immediately that something significant has taken place. Disciples? Nah, they're as clueless as ever, right? Uh... Dude, who wasn't touching you? Have you seen this crowd? I mean, they are not aware of what's taking place in their very midst. I mean, how can you ask that question, Jesus, who touched you? Everybody touched you. But Jesus noticed, and he decided to stop. Now, he could have said to himself, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be going with Jairus to his house because his daughter is sick. I'm sorry, I don't have time to stop, but if you... Uh, uh, come back, I'll be at such and such a town tomorrow, and then you can see me. No, no, he, he stops. He, for some reason, he want, even though the, the healing has taken place, he wants to have a physical contact, a physical interaction with this woman. There was more that needed to take place than just her healing. Mark says that Jesus felt the power leave him. This is the first time this word power will be used. It will be used ten times in Mark's gospel. And notice that it wasn't that power flowed through him. No, no, no. Power came from him. Jesus is the one who is the source of this power. Verse 32. He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So here's the second person to fall down before Jesus in the same afternoon. She was hoping just to be able to touch his cloak and, and to move on unnoticed, but that was not the case. 
And she knows that a powerful change has taken place within her, something that hadn't happened for 12 years, and she doesn't know what to make of the person who wielded that power. But Jesus wants to make sure this woman recognizes that the healing wasn't some sort of magical moment. It's not a special cloak uh, that made her well. No, he was that source. And with the woman kneeling humbly before him, he says this in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It's actually a powerful statement that Jesus says to her. He calls her daughter. Daughter, this unnamed woman who had been sick and isolated for 12 years, who had been uh, pushed outside of community, who couldn't come to worship, couldn't go learn in the synagogue, couldn't be in any close relationship with another person at all. And just think how, how many of us have been struggling for uh, 19 months of being socially isolated from people. She had been doing that eight times longer than we've been experiencing the pandemic. And Jesus calls her daughter. The incredible faith that it took for her to do what she did. He tells her not only is she well, but she has been healed. She has been restored to God and to community this very day, and she is now under the protection of a new father. That is Jesus. What a powerful story of new life and resurrection, don't you think? This unnamed woman whose life felt as though she was good as dead. Her encounter with Jesus changes everything. And, and part of us are happy for her, I imagine, but another part, if we're honest, if we hadn't heard this story before, we're thinking, um, come on, Jesus, you had something to be doing. You were on your way to this little girl. I mean, why did you stop and spend so much time with this woman? She's been sick for 12 years. She can wait another day. This little girl is dying. But because of this, the first shall be last, and this woman who was last is made first. But our hearts are breaking for this little girl, and we want Jesus to get moving to what he needed to do in the first place. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, first of all, I wonder what the face of that unnamed woman was like when she realized the time that Jesus took to stop and interact with her has now cost a little girl her life. I mean, <laughs> that wasn't the plan at all. She didn't know that Jesus was on his way somewhere important. She just wanted to touch him while he hurried past, and now a girl is dead. Your daughter is dead, they tell Jairus. Why trouble the leader any further? It's too late. She's gone. Dr. Boring asks, is literal physical death the death of hope? Jairus has already manifested faith in coming to Jesus, but now he's become fearful. He, he is challenged by the report. He can no longer ask for healing. Jesus challenges him to overcome his fear, as had the woman, and to continue his faith in imitation of hers. Now remember, friends, and Concha, this is the best kind of sandwich. This is a story sandwich. 
right? Suddenly we see one advantage of putting these two stories together. The father needed to see the faith of this unnamed woman. He needed to hear Jesus commend her for her bold and faithful actions because Jairus is going to need that very same kind of faith in just a few moments. He has to replace his fear with that faith. And he's just witnessed this powerful healing example before his very eyes. Do not fear, says Jesus. And I think sometimes that's how life works, right? Haven't you had the opportunity to walk alongside someone else, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, maybe even just someone that posts on social media what's been happening with them, and you experience along with them whatever it is they were going through. And you may not be going through that similar thing right now, but maybe, maybe God wants you to have that interaction so that down the road when you do, it won't catch you by surprise. That maybe what others are going through can be learning moments for us or for someone we love. That down the road, we'll need to draw upon that. Jairus needed to see this woman of faith because he was about to need it himself. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, Peter, James, and John were three of Jesus' closest disciples. In fact, there are other two instances in the Gospels where Jesus brings these three uh, to a place that none of the other disciples get to go. One is on the mountain of transfiguration when they see Jesus in all of his glory and they begin to understand that he is even greater than they originally imagined. And then the, second, the third time was in the final hours of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and then crucified. So, Peter, James, and John, with Jesus, arrive at Jairus' house. There's lots happening. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have embalming or refrigeration techniques, so often when a person died, they were buried that same day. Plus... You would hire flute players and professional mourners to make sure the proper mood was achieved. In fact, uh, they say even the poorest of families would have at least uh, two flute players and one mourner. Uh, Frederick Buechner says that people wept and wailed because they didn't have it in them to pretend that the death of a child is anything but the tra tragic, unspeakable thing that it actually is. Jody and I had the privilege of seeing Hamilton yesterday at the historic Pantages Theater. It was the first time I, I was able to go into that theater. One of my favorite songs from the show is entitled It's Quiet Uptown. It's a song that's sung near the end of the production. Um, Alexander and Eliza Hamilton's son, Philip, has died tragically. And the opening words of the song say this. There are moments that the words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. That's what Jairus is walking into as he prepares to see his daughter for the last time no longer alive. He is experiencing the unimaginable when a parent loses a child. Verse 39, when Jesus had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion to weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in to where the child was. 
R. Alan Culpepper notes that the word sleep was a common euphemism for death in Jesus' day. And by using that word, Jesus isn't trying to pretend that death is not real, but saying that it is not the final thing. It's not the end and be-all of everything. And of course, when you laugh at Jesus, uh, don't expect to get invited into the party. So instead, Jesus just takes in the parents, Peter, James, and John, and they go to see this precious, precious girl. Verse 41, Jesus took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. She was 12 years of age. Oh, that's right. We're in a story sandwich. Where else have we heard 12 years? Ah, that was what the woman had been suffering from her bleeding. That exact same length of time. And we begin to see the connections between these seemingly unrelated stories. Now, Jesus has already ritually defiled himself by coming in contact with the unnamed woman because she had been bleeding, but also to touch a dead body in Jewish culture was also to make oneself ritually unclean. But we know that Jesus is not afraid of ritual uncleanness, so he calmly reaches out to touch another woman in need, this time a 12-year-old girl. Talitha kum, he says. It's not Greek that he's speaking. It's actually Aramaic. That was the language that Jesus spoke throughout his life. That was the common day-to-day language. And how significant, don't you think, that Mark chose these words. The rest of his gospel is in Greek, but these words in Jesus' own language, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. By the way, did I ever mention what Jairus means, it means he awakens. She is not sleeping. Or she is not dead, only sleeping. Frederick Buechner writes, it was not just the child's life that had been given back, of course, but the lives of the mother and father who stood there with no words they knew how to say. And with that touch and with those words, power goes out of Jesus once again, and death, from out of death comes resurrection and new life. And this little daughter was brought back to new life to become a woman. And yes, she would eventually die again someday once more. But what a powerful testimony to know at age 12 that death does not have the final word. I imagined when she went on to her future death, she went there very differently. But there is one who takes us from life to life, and she had already experienced his power. So, connecting the story to us. What is it that we have that keeps us afraid? What is it that is preventing us from embracing this gift of life by God? And it may not be the life that you would have drawn up if you could check all the boxes of what you want and how you want to be feeling and experiencing right now, but every single day is a gift from God. And whether it's our lack of health or the health of a loved one, our finances or lack thereof, a a, a torn relationship or some status in life that's less than ideal, whatever it is that's pulling our focus away from the miracle of being alive and breathing and being in relationship to one another, Jesus says... Be not afraid. And it doesn't mean we're not going to have to face our share of struggles and heartaches and disappointments. (laughs) That's just part of being alive. Because not everyone gets a miracle like the way these two women did. In fact, most of us 
don't. Heck, even Jesus himself asked for a miracle when he faced his final days in the Garden of the Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John close by. He said, God, if at all possible, please remove this cup from me. Let, let there be some other way. But God did not answer that prayer. He didn't miraculously save Jesus from that moment because, spoiler alert, keeping safe has never been the goal of Christianity. Being faithful, that is the goal. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that pulls this story sandwich together and we see it and our lives in a new light. From Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not about getting miracles to help us through the challenges of life. No, it's about Jesus' ultimate triumph over death itself. It's about death not having the final say and knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death. So be not afraid. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. And by his presence with us, we need not be afraid of anything. For he is the one who came to bring us closer to God and to one another, and that was a gift that this unnamed woman and Jairus, his wife, and his 12-year-old daughter came to learn firsthand. It's a gift that each of us can learn as well if our hearts are open. And all God's people said,